12 years have passed since the beginning of the Syrian crisis. 12 years where Syrians have been subjected to human rights violations, war crimes, and displacement. Over 7 million people are currently displaced within Syria. Over 70% of them are in need of humanitarian assistance and over 90% of them live below the poverty line. In addition, 14 million Syrians are currently displaced around the world. Despite many countries claiming to have granted asylum to hundreds or even thousands of Syrian refugees, many of them have been subjected to dehumanizing and undignified treatment. In addition, Syrians have also had to watch as these countries are now normalizing ties with the Assad regime in an attempt to justify sending them back, even though the same regime that committed war crimes against their family and friends is still in power. In this episode, we speak to Selene Qasim, social media coordinator of the Syrian Emergency Task Force, about the current humanitarian situation in Syria, the ongoing politicization of aid, and the false narratives around Syrian refugees. Welcome to the third episode of More Than a Statistic, a podcast by Our World 2. Hello everyone, thank you so much for tuning in and today I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and just kind of what I do and what I'm passionate about. But yeah, my name is Selena Qasim, I'm Syrian, Canadian, Circassian, Armenian, I've lived all around the world, um, but currently I'm based in Istanbul and I work at the Syrian Emergency Task Force and um, our work is very based on the Syrian crisis and and everything that's happened since 2011 to this day. Um, our work is mostly political and advocacy and accountability, but we also do humanitarian work as well. And ever since the earthquake happened on February 6th, um, we've been responding to the earthquake as a humanitarian organization, even though we are not. So we've been doing that. Uh, We've been working on a lot of cases uh, with the Syrian international community all around the world. And just yesterday, there was a case opened in France, actually, and we helped out with that. So we do a lot of work. The organization is based in D.C., but we're kind of all around the world all at the same time. And that's a little bit of a, a quick rundown about all of that. Thank you so much for telling us more about yourself and about what you do. Um, just kind of going a little bit more into depth, you mentioned that the Syrian task, uh, the Syrian Emergency Task Force even, was established in 2011 after the war started. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what preceded that? What kind of how people came to this conclusion that something like this was kind of needed? So um, basically, there's one thing that I do want to like kind of also talk about. What happened in Syria is not a war. It's not a civil war. It's um, It started in 2011, in March 2011, and people were inspired by the Arab Spring, right? All around, uh, all around them in the region. So in Egypt and Libya and Tunis, people came out and they were protesting for freedom and for their dignity. And in some nations, it worked out. But um, in Syria, these people saw this and they were inspired. And it was actually children that came out and wrote on the walls of their school, your turn is next, doctor. Um, and it was just kids, you know, like they didn't know what was going to come out of this. They had no idea. They didn't know how deadly this regime is. 
Um, so they wrote this on the wall, and then the next day they were arrested and tortured, and some of them killed. Um, so I just always try to put myself in the shoes of these parents. And to a certain degree, I don't know what I would have reacted if that was if I was a parent of these kids. So um, they came out and they came out protesting, peacefully protesting in the streets with flowers and with water in their hands. Um, and they just said, we want freedom, we want dignity, and we don't want to be oppressed by this regime. We want our rights. Um, and that's basically what started it. It was March 11th, uh, March 15th, the date is kind of fought upon, but, um, they came out in the streets and they were peacefully protesting, but the regime and the Assad, the Assad regime met them with, with bullets and with, and with arrestment and, and torture. Um, so it's not really a civil war. It was a regime, a dictator regime that, that, that killed anyone that opposed it that displaced anyone that opposed it. There's more than half of the Syrian population that is outside of Syria right now, that is outside of their home. So they, they got displaced by, half of the population got displaced by this regime and what this regime has done. It has forced them to leave their home and everything that they've ever known. Um, it's killed their children. It's tortured their children. There's so many disappeared disappeared people that their families know nothing about. So to a certain degree when, and it's so, like, it's so, it's very understandable that the world just, just doesn't know, um, the reality, but, but it's not a civil war and the, the, the regime is way, way, way stronger and, 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 and killed, um, so many, like a civil war, it has to be two equal entities and, and in Syria, that was not the case. Thank you so much for making that distinction. And I think that's such a common misconception kind of perpetrated within the media and kind of even within policies that are attempting to quote unquote deal with Syrian refugees because they present it as a civil war. Mm -hmm. When you very correctly mentioned that, it, it's definitely not. And I think just to kind of highlight upon, it's been 12 years now since the start of the conflict, of the start of the oppression uh, of Assad's genocidal campaign against his own people. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of just speak a little bit more or tell our listeners more about the humanitarian crisis and how it's unfolded in Syria since 2011 to kind of the point we're at now with the the earthquake and kind of how how everything has been made worse because of it? Yeah, so um, the humanitarian situation in Syria has, ever since the beginning of 2011, he besieged certain towns. So if, if they were controlled by the opposition, um, he would besiege them and he wouldn't allow any food or, or, or any of what a human being needs to live into these besieged areas that were, that, um, that had thousands of people that were living in them that were being bombed every single day. So ever since the beginning of, of, of the crisis in Syria, he would besiege these areas, and along with Russia, along with Iran, along with all of their allies, they would besiege areas and, and no humanitarian aid would be allowed. And then, um, so when the UN came into play and everything, um, they, would, they would bring in aid into Syria, but there has been um, rightful evidence that this regime 
and and Esma al-Assad has stolen this this aid and has reselled it and 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 um there's just been obvious evidence of that all over all over the internet and all over everywhere and if you know this regime and if you know the people that are in this government you would not be surprised at all i mean they're killing people so so what's it if they're stealing if they're stealing the aid that's coming into them that they're killing um and kind of along with until let's like walk towards now northwest syria is is held by rebels or is held by opposition um and it's also a besieged area with a couple of cross borders that can be that from Turkey can can bring in aid, um, but these borders are controlled by the UN. And when the earthquake happened, they the UN had waited seven days to get approval by Bashar al-Assad, who has no control over these borders, to open up to get approval to open up these borders, and. And we don't even need to talk about how badly the UN responded to Northwest Syria and how badly they were ignored and humiliated. And once again, they had thought that maybe this is, maybe this is a this this is a, this is a natural disaster. It's not Bashar Assad killing us anymore. This is a natural disaster. Maybe they'll come in and they'll help us. Maybe maybe they won't see it as a as a political situation. Maybe they'll see it as a humanitarian situation. And the UN is going to come in and they're going to help us. These people needed around $50,000 worth of diesel and fuel to dig bodies outside of rubble. And they only have limited resources. The only people that were on the ground digging people out. And there was thousands of people where you can hear them underneath the, underneath the buildings. Their families, they can heal their families underneath the buildings, but they couldn't do anything because they don't have the right equipment. The White Helmets were the only... On the ground, civil defense or uh, civil defense organization that were helping people dig, but they only had limited bulldozers. They only had limited um, uh, things to dig people out. They did not have enough for the amount of people. Also, again, Northwest Syria is a besieged area where everyone that was displaced out of their out of their regions in, in the rest of Syria, so Damascus, Hamas, Halab. Hama, everywhere that was displaced and that was not allowed to live there anymore because of the situation, either left Syria or came to northwest Syria. So they, all these people, there's around four to six million people in this small besieged area of northwest Syria that is not allowed anything in from, from Syria. I mean, they're killing them, they're bombing them, so why would they bring in anything into there? And then, and then when the borders opened, so I was there the seventh day after the earthquake, when the borders opened, there was no UN aid coming in. There was nothing coming in, and it was such a disappointment. The people were just heartbroken. The people just had have had it. They've lived absolutely everything for the past 12 years. They've lived killing, torture, gassing, chemical weapons, um, everything. They've lived everything. And then this earthquake was 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 another thing that they hadn't lived, was the only thing that they hadn't lived until today. Um, and going and talking to them face to face, they're just, they were so heartbroken and they just wanted someone to listen. They knew that nothing was going to happen. They knew that nothing was going to come out of this, but they just wanted someone to listen. Um, and there was no humanitarian aid. There was no, there was no humanitarian aid that was adequate enough for these people during this time. It's honestly always shocking to hear how aid organizations are still willing or still waiting for 
Bashar al-Assad and his regime to give them permission to deliver aid when they could always partner with local organizations on the ground to get aid to people. And it's just the devastation caused by the earthquake and people literally using their hands to dig out, like you were saying, like their families when they could hear them under the rubble. And it was heartbreaking to see because this could have been prevented if you had gone for a more localized approach instead of waiting for larger organizations to go in, literally give the give the aid to the Syrian people to help themselves. Like they don't people don't need you to come in and save them. They just need to be give those things that can enable them to save themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just really I think difficult to see. And even in a lot of the reporting or even in a lot of the aid that was going to these uh, to the region, there was Syria was largely missed. It wasn't mentioned in reporting. It wasn't mentioned. Aid wasn't going to them. And it was just very hard to see that politicization of aid, essentially something that was meant to save lives, is now saving some but condemning others. And then also, this is important to mention, aid that was coming into Damascus was literally being sold on the streets. So aid that was coming into Damascus from the UAE, from from all these other countries that brought in aid from all over the region that brought in aid that was coming into Damascus, even through the UN, was being sold on the streets. And I know people in Damascus that would go onto the market, that would go to the street, and that would see products that literally said not made for not made for selling, and and that was being sold on the streets. That whenever whoever was was uh, receiving money from the outside to buy to buy things to help people that were affected. They had to go into municipalities, to government buildings, to give them that money and then have a percentage taken from it for their own percentage and then and then that's and then they were allowed to give like twenty percent to the to the through their through themselves. They would be like, Yeah, we've got it, don't worry. And then they wouldn't hear anything about that money or anything about that aid. Um so all of the all of the humanitarian aid that was reaching Damascus, that was reaching regime held areas was not reaching the people, was not reaching the people adequately, was not reaching the people the way that it should have, um, and was definitely not reaching people in northwest Syria. We're talking about regime held areas. We're not talking about northwest when we're talking about Damascus aid. Because, I mean, I don't know what you expect if, if, if this regime has been bombing, killing, and torturing these people for 12 years. Why would you expect them to 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 give them aid after an earthquake it it makes absolutely no sense to me i don't know in which brain in which un brain in which international organization or 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 government that would make any absolute sense no you're 100% right the same people doing the killing cannot be the same people doing the saving it's just mm-hmm. it's not how it works it and sense. i think just going maybe a little off topic but i think it also relates to it's just very interesting to see how international organizations and the world in general relate, like responded to the earthquake in Syria. And there's so much narratives right now amongst countries, many countries. I can't even just say Western countries. I'm going to say countries in general having this thing saying the war is over. Uh, Syrian refugees can go back. Um, there's no active fighting. They've, and I think I read somewhere yesterday, someone was saying, oh, they voted for Bashar al-Assad. But what kind of voting can you have in a dictatorship like it doesn't it it doesn't make any sense and just that narrative that Syria is now safe is so troubling 
because to send anyone back is to condemn them in it's i think there's just such a lack of understanding about these this major concept just because maybe guns aren't actively firing it doesn't mean it's a livable situation it doesn't mean Bashar al-Assad still isn't in power and won't go and attack people as soon as they return i mean i mean it's the Syrian crisis is not as complicated as people make it seem. It's it's a dictator who has done all of these things. And we have we literally have more proof against Bashar al-Assad and his regime than, than during the World War II people had against Hitler. We have photos. We have evidence. We have prosecution against his regime. We have prosecution against his guards, against people that would torture in prison, against people that have killed others. We have video evidence. We have photo evidence. But the the international community just do, does not seem to to want to step in because we can't do this ourselves by now. We've been trying for twelve years. We literally cannot cannot achieve what we wanted. And I mean, the revolution is alive in our hearts and 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 will continue to until the day that it, it succeeds. But the geopolitical environment that we are in right now is just not allowing for this to happen. So we have all that evidence, but no one is acting upon it. When it comes to normalization and when it comes to um, countries wanting to send back refugees, I mean, I mean, we have seen, we have literally seen what happens when, when, when these refugees are going back to Syria. If you want to just look up Mazen Hamada and see what happened to him after he went back to Syria... This guy was detained and tortured, and he has, if you just look at his face, you can see the amount of pain and the amount of misery in his eyes and what he lived in these prisons. There's there's scars that he has on his bodies, on his body. He was mentally not well, and, and he was convinced by the regime to come back to Syria and we'll free your family, and we'll give you this, we'll give you that. He went back and he disappeared once again. He was imprisoned and he was disappeared in Bashar Assad's prisons once again. I mean, I don't know what you need more to, to, to know that, I mean, Bashar Assad is still bombing Syria, is still, and Russia is still bombing northwest Syria. Maybe they're not bombing his regime-held areas anymore because it makes sense he got them back. But... He is bombing northwest Syria, and as the as our organization, as the Syrian Emergency Task Force, we have an app that you can get on your phone called Syria Watch. And this is just a reminder to you, every single time there's an attack on civilians, whatever it is, we have, we report that uh, attack, whatever it is, either if it's airstrikes, or if it's elephant, if it's bombings, or whatever it is, it's reported with the coordinates of exactly where it happened in Syria. So, I mean, the bombing has not stopped, the airstrikes has not stopped, the torture has not stopped, the, the, the fear in people's eyes and in people's life has not stopped. There's a saying in Syria that the walls listen to you when you're talking. That has not stopped. Nothing of what has happened the 12 years has stopped. It's just being cleaned up or it's just being, it's being, it's being portrayed differently. I mean, there's YouTubers coming to Syria. They're going. They're doing tourism in Syria, and 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 it's 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 very important to recognize that this is all propaganda, and the regime is literally paying these people and sending fixers with these people to take them around to certain places and to show them certain places and to show them certain things to portray that to the rest of the world. 
And now the normalization that's taking place in the, in, 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 in the Arab region is just literally disgusting and there's no words to even describe because these exact same people that are right now shaking hands with Bashar al-Assad 10 years ago when the revolution started were saying why are we ma- why are we allowing this regime to trick us this regime is killing its people and there is footage of these people saying this exact same thing so there are hypocrites and 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 I don't know any any amount of 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 what to say to describe how Syrians feel towards them. Um, it just makes no sense. And and if you if you're sending, I mean, they're doing it now. They're doing it in Denmark, in the UK, in in Turkey. They're sending. They want to send, and they're working on sending refugees back to Syria. What you're doing when you're doing that is you are putting these lives at risk. And there has been proof that when these people are being sent back, they're disappearing. And what does disappearing mean in in Assad's in Assad's prison? It means that they are being tortured and they are being killed. So that's just the reality that no one is 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 seems to be seeing. I think just like kind of reading the media narrative and think some countries are very happy to send people back just so they can say they're not our problem anymore, and. Obviously, that's completely against 1951, the Refugee Convention. And they're sending, or at one point I read something about uh, in Denmark, they were sending women back, but they weren't sending men back because men could be conscripted. But then you're completely ignoring the fact that there's a whole gender-based violence that is specifically targeted at women. And by sending them back, you are literally putting them at risk of gender-based violence, of rape, of forced impregnation, of so many things. And there's no recognition of this. And I feel like the response has been, if we just kind of compare the response, and I I fully say this, I fully start this point by saying all refugees, regardless of where they're from, deserve safety. But the response to Ukraine versus response to Syria has been astoundingly different. As, As in, I think Putin's already trying to be convicted of war crimes or something has happened along those lines. But Bashar al-Assad is still happily in power and... But I mean, what's funny, what's funny when it comes to that is that Syrian people and Ukraine people are both, are both living Putin's war crimes. And, and Russia is the main, the number one ally for Syria. And the number one reason why, why Bashar Assad is still powerful and still has his, his people and still has his, his weapons, um, and is a partner in the crime. So, a lot of the the massacres that took place in Syria over the past twelve years have been have been perpetrated by Russia and by Putin. So when you sit and when you when you watch um, how the world is reacting very differently, um, it's just honestly it's you can't really put into words. It's very ignorant. It's very disgusting to see. But also at the same time, it's like me and my Ukrainian like whoever it is, we have lived the same thing. It's the same perpetrator. It's the same people, um, and I mean, if you're prosecuting, if you're if you're if you're prosecuting Putin, that's good for us Syrians as well. Because if this guy is out of place, then Bashar Assad loses his power. Then Bashar Assad can cannot be as powerful as he is right now, and then he doesn't have to bomb us as well. So yes, it is very different, and it's very very heartbreaking and sad. But at the same time, it's like we are we are the same. We're living the same um, perpetration by by these dictators and by these war criminals. Um, so it's just very, it's very weird to see. You can't even put it into words. 
um, because we are living the same thing and it makes no sense. Thank you for highlighting that. I think it's literally just artificial lines are drawn to put people into boxes and kind of say like, like you're saying, you are living the same thing. Syrians are living the same thing. Ukrainians are not living the same thing. It's just very, it's basically kind of saying what's fashionable, what people should be supporting. And obviously we know the media narrative goes a long way to kind of portray which groups are worth supporting over others. And there's so many narratives around kind of around Syrian refugees. And what do you want people to know about Syrian refugees like right now, like 12 years after the war? Like, what would you want to say to people? Like, what would you want to tell them? Well, um, refugees are just like me and you. They 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 were sitting one day at home and, and then they were being attacked and they had lost their family. They've lost everything. They could have lost everything. They could have bits felt unsafe. They could have um they could have just not couldn't live there anymore. So when you talk about refugees, just remember that these people are normal human beings, just like me and you. Normal human beings who had dreams, normal human beings who had land, who had their jobs, who had their their own their own their whole life. They have their whole life in their countries. And then when these circumstances were happened upon them, they had no other option. When this dictator came in and then and then was bombing their town because because someone is protesting peacefully against them, they had no other option but to flee. Because this is human nature, we wanna we wanna strive to survive. Um, so so when you're when you're saying that these people are the, I mean I know I'm I'm a refugee myself. Um, in the states, people would be like, "Go back to ISIS, you're Syrian," and I look like this, so I can't even imagine what people what people go through on the daily. Um, it's just very important to recognize that these people are normal human beings with normal dreams, with normal lives. Um, and they left absolutely everything they ever loved, they ever knew, to a whole new place, to, to learn a whole new language, to learn a whole new culture. So just, I mean, give them credit where it's due. Like, um, I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's very um, eerie. You don't even know if they've lost family, if they've lost their, their loved ones, if they've lost absolutely everything. You have no idea what they've been through. So I think what we need to do right now is is more than ever. I mean, it's been 12 years. Um, these people are just, just exhausted. And then they just want to feel at home wherever it is. They just want to feel at home and they want to have that safety and that security. So wherever it is in the world that they ended up in, um, try to be there. Like, just try to not to not be with the narrative of sending them back or whatever. Try to understand their story. Try to ask them, what what are what do you do? What happened? Like what like just be just be a kind human being to these people because they need it um, after all this time. Um, and I completely understand that they have lost some sort of hope um, in 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 the revolution or some sort of um, any of that. But I think it's important to recognize that we all need to stay working on this crisis and we need to keep going because people on the ground have no one left other than us who are who are still working and who still have um that belief and that passion in in the revolution thank you and just kind of carrying on from that point it's um i kind of been reading these 
obviously a lot of this comes off from social media because of what the media has been saying around, oh, why didn't people stay to fight? I would have stayed if I was there. I I don't know why men leave a fighting age. And there's just this ignorance around the fact that if you've seen so much loss, so much bloodshed, so much trauma, at some point you just think, I, I want to live, I want my family to live, and it's time to leave. And even just around that, there's so much... Um, when people are forced to leave, it's never... No one willingly leaves their home. And yeah. like exactly what you were saying and just reiterating all of that, no one ever leaves their home unless it's like literally the last thing they have to do. Everyone loves their communities, their families, their friends, their comfort. It's their comfort. And just even to our listeners or anyone, it, it's literally just putting yourself in a place to imagine, literally looking around you and seeing everything you take for granted and literally in five seconds it could be taken away from you. And I think that's literally something that's missing from when people talk about refugees, when they describe refugees. One is empathy. And secondly, it's the narrative from people with lived experience themselves. Because you can't, there's only so much you can speculate why someone left. There's only so much you can speculate why someone is your neighbor now. Just ask them. Just ask them. It's literally that simple. They're not aliens. They're just humans with, with a story that could be a little bit different than yours. But but they lived a childhood and they lived, a, they they. They fell in love, they went to school, they lived a normal life the same way you have. But they were put in circumstances that you probably would also not be able to, 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 to survive, so you would have to leave as well. And I mean, when it comes to why didn't people stay, people stayed until the absolute last second. If you want to watch a movie called Four Sema, I highly, highly recommend watching it. People literally stayed until the regime was on the other side of the wall and they were getting calls from the UN saying you have to leave now because because the regime is coming in and you have no other option. So people stayed and people fought for their land and and that's when they were called certain things. So so I mean right now when we're seeing nations fight for themselves it's like wow like it's so Wow, like it's praised. Um, and Syrians did that. Syrians stayed. Until today, they are still in Syria, in northwest Syria, being bombed and being and, and getting airstriked from Assad and from Putin. But they still stayed. They're still there. We are still there to this day. Um, so it's just, you have to understand what these people lived through and what by the end of it, they were forced to leave. Because at the end of the day, even if you're a doctor, even if you're whatever it is that you are, your family and, and the life of your family, I know people that didn't care about their lives, but they cared about their kids' lives, but they cared about their wife's lives. So you don't, at that time, you're being selfish if you stay and if you force your family to stay there with you and and, and uh, are putting them at risk of, of being killed in very, very many different ways. Um, so I definitely recommend for you to watch For Sema. It's a beautiful movie and, and it's filled with, with love and pain and misery, but it's, 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 it's also very uplifting at the same time. Um, so definitely watch that. And Wad Khatib actually is in the UK now and I'm sure she did. They do like movie, uh, showings all the time. So you can follow her and you can, you can definitely watch the movie to get more insight on why Syrians left or or didn't leave at the end of it all and just as a note to our listeners i will be linking 
uh, this I will be linking Syria Watch and I'll be linking For Sama in the description. So if you want to check those out, I definitely recommend you do. Yeah. And you're right. It is literally a last resort. You stay and you do as much as you can. But when it comes to the lives of your family, um, I don't know anyone who would stay willingly or have their family stay in those situations willingly. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of just brings me on to my last question. What are some practical ways our listeners can support the Syrian Emergency Task Force and Syrian organizations and refugees more widely? Mm-hmm. Um, so firstly, pretty, pretty um, in general, I think that whatever it is, whatever crisis that you see and you think needs attention or needs or needs help or needs assistance in any possible way, whatever it is that you do in your life, whatever your passion is, whatever you studied, whatever you're working, I think that you can find a way to help. Um, so I think it's very important to know your resources, to know your privilege, to know what you can offer. And that's 100% not always money and humanitarian aid. It does not have to be that. If you just make sure that you yourself are is educated, that is good enough for me. If you know that what these people went through and what forced them to leave is is this is this deadly regime along with its allies that is enough for so many Syrians if you just know and if you educate yourself and if you educate people around you in your in in, in your neighborhood in your school in your university if you write a if you do research that is good enough if you if you make art and 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 you make some sort of art about Syria that is good enough for us Whatever it is, even if it's the tiniest little thing, um, I mean, we all have very busy lives. We all don't have time to, to dedicate our lives the same way others have to certain causes, but we all can help in various, various different ways. So whatever it is that you do, if you think that there's something out there that you can help out with, I think that it's very, very important to do so, especially now, especially after 12 years, especially after the world is normalizing with this regime after after all that it has done. Um, and then when it comes to the task force, um, we have a lot of we have a lot of things that people can can be can be a part of, can be interested in. Um, and the number one thing I can tell you is that if you ever want to bring so if you want to look up the Caesar bill and, and what who Caesar is, Caesar is a guy that defected from the military and he used to take pictures of tortured bodies that were killed by this regime. He took around 55,000 photos and then he defected from the army and he left and he came um, and we used these photos to, to, to get sanctions on the, on the Assad regime. Um, and these pictures are, are absolutely horrific. There are no words to describe them, but these photos are, are, we use them for awareness and we use them to bring them to universities, to colleges, to parliaments, and we bring attention to what happened in Syria and the war crimes that this regime inflicted upon its people. So we can bring a Caesar exhibit to your school if you want to, if you want to bring more awareness, if you want people to know about Syria. Um, we always collaborate with universities and with colleges to do this. Uh, we also have three humanitarian projects on the ground in Syria that you can also be a part of and that you can donate to or you can, if you can help out. And if you have any ideas, you can reach out and volunteer with us. Uh, we have an, orf- an orphan uh, kindergarten in Syria. It's called the Wisdom House. These kids are, are beautiful. I went and I saw them and they're, they're, they've lived 
the hardest lives, but they're 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 still they still have so much hope and so much love and 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 laughter in them. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, coming from the outside in. And then we also have Tomorrow's Dawn, which is a, a women's high school. So women high school age that never got to finish their high school because of displacement, because of the, because of the war. Um, they're, they're finishing their, their high school diplomas now. So they get, they even get like certain classes that wouldn't be in a normal high school. So we offer like art classes and, and workshops of medical workshops and, um, knitting workshops so they they get to make us a bunch of little cute clothes that we bring in for kids and we bring them and 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 uh fundraise off of them for for the school um so we have that also in Syria and then we also have um the house of healing which is a rehab center in Gaziantep on the border of Syria and Turkey and we house uh, people that are coming in, so war-injured people that are coming in from Syria to Turkey to get treatment in Turkey. So we house them, we give them a place to stay, for a pl- we give them assistance while they're in Turkey. They don't really know what's going on in the country and how the things work, so we help them with that. And I'm always at the House of Healing. I'm always going back and forth from Istanbul to Gaziantep to check up on them. So there's... And then we also have, sorry, one last thing. We also have uh, Letters of Hope. And this is a very, very beautiful project, I think. It's basically you, wherever you are in the world, you can send a letter to Syrian kids in Syria. And it, it can be colorful, it can be cute, It can your, your kid can make it and then you can send it. But when we hand these letters to these kids in Syria, they just... They love it so much. And just the fact that someone from the outside is thinking about them and is writing this letter to them can be in Arabic, can be in English, whatever whatever language that you speak, wherever you are, we've gotten them sent from every almost every single country in the world. So you can also send a letter of hope to kids in Syria. You, if you're a teacher, if you're a kindergarten teacher, you can make your whole class write it for a certain project. And then you can send us these letters and then we bring them down to Syria with us. Um, this project is beautiful and it's, it's, it brings so much joy to the kids. And I've seen that joy with my own two eyes. And it brings me, it's the only thing that sometimes when I lose hope or sometimes when I just feel tired of, of, of what is going on and the, and the amount of work that we do, this is the thing that gives me hope and that allows me to keep going is the kids and, and, and how much we still have to keep going for these kids who have endured so much. Thank you so much for telling us all those, all the ways. And I think sometimes when people keep hearing about a crisis so much, it feels overwhelming and they don't know how to get involved. But the fact you said you don't have to be from the international, the humanitarian background, you don't have to be from international development to help out. It could literally just, you just be... You have to be a human to help Syrians. You literally just have to be human. Um, and if you have that humanity in you, you can find a way to, to do something about it. You can find a way to, to teach someone about it, to educate someone about it, and to know better yourself. I think that's literally, I think, where everyone should start. Just spreading it to one person, telling someone else, telling someone else. And then that change can happen. And it can definitely combat the negative rhetoric we're seeing in the media, seeing it in politics, and even some academic work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kind of I wanted to thank you firstly for all the incredible work you do 
And I think I've learned so much from you and I will definitely be taking it forward in the way our world too talks about and spreads information about the Syrian crisis. And I just thank you so much for being a guest today and thank I've learned so you. much from you. Thank you so much for giving me the platform to do this and to say this. I mean, as we said, the media is twisting and turning things around all the time. Um, so people like you and, and platforms like this need to need to bring the real voices and, and us to the to the forefront. Um, so doing this is it's huge. You don't even realize how huge it is. Um, so thank you so much. <laughs>